we're on episode six and we're still not out of order yet so that's got to be some sort of new record for us uh welcome back to mentioning dispatches uh as noted episode six we're talking about rules tonight uh not rules of orders not robert's rules rule books rules formats rules writing all things regarding the rules of wargaming and to do that we we brought together well we were going to bring together a distinguished panel and we ended up with these guys Okay. So um, we we and, and all of them are back for at least a second appearance this season so far. Our man in in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, Ardwolf is here. Gary, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me again. Outstanding. Thank you for joining us in the mad dash between shows that you've been off to. You're that's uh, pretty much correct. Yeah, you're you're kind of the the Howard Stern of wargaming, huh? The king of all media here. I don't know about all that, but uh, <laughs> but I was just on with the kings of wargaming all media, the Players Aid. So yeah. And uh, and Rocky is here again. Ian, how are you? Good. Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, rule the night here, shall we? All right. So I may end up editing this out. I may leave it in just for the conversation. Your levels were fine until I hit record, and now you're scratching again. Now you're on mute. <laughs> what about now? Right now you're still scratching. I don't know what it is. How about now? Sound like a Henny Youngman LP. Hey. Well, either we are just coming back from an edit while we fix sound levels, or we just left it all in. Uh, in either event, we are going to welcome Jim to the show. Cyrano, how you doing? Yeah, I, I thought this was a Robert's Rules of Order discussion. I'm really disappointed. I came ready. I came ready to talk day job. I guess not interested. I'll just have to cope. I, I am sorry that we will have to delay a discussion of the dark arts of bureaucracy for another show. Bugger. All right. Let's see if we let's see see how Rocky sounds this time. How's the sound now? One, two, three. That four, is six. excellent, actually. Okay. That is non-scratchy. All right. So I'm not sure what you did, but but now it all works. So all right. Now that we've got appropriate sound levels for everybody, um, we uh, th- this is a new topic for us. This is not something we've tackled before on any of our podcasts. Uh, that you know, look, Rocky, this one's all your fault. You were the guy that wanted to talk rules. Give us the primer. What what did you have in mind? What were you thinking for for leading tonight's discussion on on rules? Well, I've just heard a lot of people complain that uh, they don't like war game rules. Uh, they say they're too complicated. They don't like formats. They don't like the language. So I thought we'd just sort of walk through and talk about you know what we liked what we don't like uh is there a certain approach that we find best and and really just sort of say uh is it really is it really the rules that are that are the uh slowing down people you know accessibility to games or anything like that or is it just that everybody learns differently and everybody uh that reads differently. Is it the complexity of the rules that that are making people uh, more challenged, or is it just um, you know a change of taste? Do people just want the really uh, simple what used to be a beer and pretzels game and nothing else? So just those a uh, couple of thoughts to throw around. So so we're gonna have to talk about the scientification of our vocabulary here. I did right? not say that. Okay. Well, you were sort of leaning into it. So I, I look, Gary, you've done like a handful of shows over the last couple of weeks between sort of the history. Of, of Avalon Hill, but also your transformative war game show that uh, part of the, or, or sort of, I, I don't think you actually call it, did you call it? It was war games that transformed war gaming or something. War games, like the war games that changed war games. Was the yeah, topic. there you go. So I imagine, you know, the, the rules were at least a part of that. We had the case system for the longest time where, where you know, it was sort of the outline format you learn in school, right? I mean, anybody can format word, can do stuff within the case system. Um, 
and and you know that that was what a lot of us lived and died with for a long time with the way the uh, a lot of the old rules formats were written. But we certainly don't adhere to that anymore these days. As you look back um, over some of those historical shows that you've done, I'm, I know rules came up in some of those conversations because I was in a few of them in the chats. Um, wh- what do you think about some of the evolution of the rules? So naturally, point? I completely disagree. Um, <laughs> there are certainly examples where that of rules that. Uh, aren't using the case system anymore, but at least in the hex encounter space, it is still the dominant way to format wargame rules. And and some rules writers, which who may or may not be the designers, uh, adhere more or less closely to that. Adam Starkweather, for example, does not heave very closely to the um, case format, but um, a, a lot still do. Right, every almost everything that MMP does is still pretty strictly case formatted. Um, Compass is kind of here and there. GMT is still using case formatting and all kinds of stuff. So um, on the other hand, we have certainly seen uh, a number of relatively high profile things break away from that traditional format lately, too. I ended the show um, on this exact topic, sort of, for the last, you know, 90 seconds or so talking about Atlantic Chase and how it represents what could end up being a revolution in rules presentation. And I don't believe that it uses the case system. And thinking about it i'm not sure that jerry white's earlier games use the case system either i know none of the rules books that i've ever written did um they also weren't great rules books so maybe i should have who knows i always found the case system a very good way to organize the rules but a very frustrating way to learn the rules um that that was my experience in in any event so uh, this is a question that has been directly addressed only a couple of times that i'm aware of um in one case in the space of wargaming and in the other case that i can think of off the top of my head it's an rpg right this is i believe second edition AD&D uh, talked about this in their introduction. Um, they said, hey, we had to think about whether we were going to structure these rules as a reference or as a teaching tool, and we opted to use uh, a reference format instead. The re- writers of the ASL rulebook made the same decision. It is a fantastically poor teaching rulebook. Um, and, <laughs> you know, if you talk to ASL people and, and ask them, how do I learn ASL? They'll tell you, find someone who knows ASL and they will teach it to you. Yeah. Uh, because that is simply not the expectation. And that wasn't the expectation with D&D either, that you would learn the game by reading the rules. You learned the game as you played it, but really only the game master needed to know the rules in the first place. I mean, D&D especially, you could just make roll you know dice eight times and you're done and make two decisions and you're done and how many dms completely ignored whatever was in the rules you know in in the interest of serving the fun of the game in the first place so oh that certainly happened routinely as well that's a l- somewhat less common in war games but to some extent it happens uh in war games as well i, I think jim's done it a few times in a couple of creek spiels here and there is like ah that's sort of what the results are supposed to say but this is a better story let's go with that well i I think in a Kriegspiel, what you get more often than not is somebody trying to do something that's outside the skin of the game, outside the four walls of the skin of the game. You know, they'll say, I want to do this. I, the, the example that I'll give is from the 1809 campaign. I had uh, Lefebvre guarding the the bridge or, you know, at Landshut and the commander of the Austrian force sent over an, a brass band to parlay (laughs) with them and invite them to drinks and convince them that they'd been abandoned by Napoleon and that they were about to be fallen upon by the entire might of the Kriegsrat and they should surrender immediately. This is exactly the kind of shit that happened when Napoleon marched into Vienna. 
<laughs> you'll be well aware. As 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 Dr. Gill will tell you. Um, as Professor Gill will tell you, yes, that, that all happened. Which is, it gives some people the absolute itch about the Kriegspiel, and I understand why. And But if you play the Kriegspiel enough, it's going to happen because it, it casts its net so wide, you can't, there can't be a case 13.62.8B for it. Yeah. You know, that there just can't be. Um, but Because but, if you have the rule for the parlay with the brass band, that implies you need the rule for the parlay with something other than the brass band. Right, your woodwind parlay, for example. Yes. If I can go back to Rocky's original question, or, you know, premise, I guess. We do hear this. We do hear this regularly, that one of the reasons that people don't play war games, that's what they are, they're war games. I say that a lot. I think it annoys Harold. Wherever Harold is, he sheds a disconsolate tear every time I say it. Um, you know, it's, it, when we play war games, people say, well, one of the reasons I don't like is because of the rule books. They're too dense. They're opaque. They're hard. And you and I, Brent, we've actually come up with a number of answers to these things. Uh, the first is a tuokuokwe, I guess, which is, I'm sorry, have you read an RPG manual lately? Yeah. You know, ha- have you picked up any of the Black Library, Warhammer 40k, Rogue Trader stuff? I- I'll not be I'll not be chastised. Not not by you, I won't. <laughs> you know, Furthermore, it's, it's, virtually every popular art role-playing game, I know we're talking about war games, but then we can point to ASL as our war game example. Mm. Virtually every popular war game has been fairly complicated to very complicated. Mm-hmm. And... And, and but I think that all that actually thank you Gary that's a dollar your way uh, is sort of my second repost. Some things are complicated. Yeah, yeah. And if what you're saying to me, if what you're saying to me is I want my game to be simpler and thus the rules that govern it to be simpler, okay, that's what you want. Yeah, you that's want, a different argument. You want a simpler war game. Don't come after the rule book for that. Yeah, that 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 won't do. Um, similarly, the game and and I'll pick one you know uh gary's wacht am rhein that he was playing at, uh just a few weeks ago a light filler game a light a, da- a dandy a dandy just a uh it's like a wisp of a wisp of summer breeze that came over your table um you know you look just look at the table you look at the table. what sort of rules do you think are going to govern that i, I think one of the rules needs to be no tweezers within 20 feet well, no, no, that, no, that no didn't ang- happen in our Vakdam Ryan game. Just no, no, no crabby old men with tweezers. How's that? Uh, no crabby old men. Period. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I, I certainly don't know the whole story. Winterfest will be down. We bet. One year we banned crabby old men, and no one came. So. <laughs> So, so if that is your complaint, I I don't know where you're starting there either. Because what do you think is going to govern something as grand and and you know awe inspiring as that? What did you think was going to happen? Yeah, you're... So if, if the argument is these are hard, number one, there's a lot of other hard games that aren't war games, so deal. Number two, some things are hard in life; they are complicated, and we want them that way. And number three. You're asking it to be something it isn't. Yeah. You know, when when you talk about the whole, you know, some things are just hard, I am always reminded of one of the best laughs I ever got in a bookstore. And that was just walking by and happening to it happened to catch my eye on the shelf that uh there is in fact a book out there that is calculus for dummies. Yes. I, of course. 
<laughs> no, my, 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 my son, who is, he's at that imminent stage where he's going to be much smarter than I am. Uh, it's, it's unnerving because he's on an advanced math track. You know, I'm already looking at his math going, oh boy, oh boy. I don't think I'm gonna be able to help him much. Oh God, over the cliff he goes into obsolescence. Yeah. And, oh, my, my daughter's in seventh grade and I'm already at that point. My son yeah. was smart enough to figure it all out the whole way along that, that we didn't have to help him with the math stuff. My daughter's in seventh grade and she's already at that point. There you go. That's which also says a lot about my math skills. <laughs> but it, but it's it's humbling and it's beautiful and I you know I really do think it's wonderful. So all, all that having been said, that critic if if that's what you think is keeping people out of war games, I think you're demented. Now, yeah. it, so what you may really be arguing is you want war games to be simpler. And fine, let's have that conversation. I'm probably going to disagree with you at some point and agree with you another. But I I think you're talking a great deal of nonsense if what you're going to argue is this is why this is why people aren't getting into war games. It's because of the rule books. I know that argument is out there. The, and, well. <laughs> you know, I, I, and I get and made it. made rather prominently in certain pages. Yes, and I get it. Somebody opens up, uh, pick one, a distant plane, and they see a 24-page rule book, and they say a 30-page playbook. You, me, Gary, Rocky, we open that up and go, ah, neat, well done, clean pages. And please bear in mind, and this is me pointing the finger at myself, please bear in mind this is intensely relative. Mm -hmm. You learn very quickly when you try to teach board games to kids that there are kids for whom Memoir 44 is just not going to happen. Yeah. And so if you tell me that a game is simple or accessible, I might think it's the simplest thing going. Like I look at Battlecry and it's actually too simple, but there are others for whom it's just a bridge too far. They don't want to do it. They're, they want to play hearts. They want to play, play spades. They want to play Euchre, you know, and that's well, fine. And too. so I think within the context of the broader board gaming hobby, not just specific to war games, I think those arguments are, are something the four of us are likely to agree on. And let's face it, we didn't bring anybody here to disagree with us. Um, And, and Rocky's going to yell at me here in just a second. And that's cool. But I, I think within the context of war gaming, even for those of us seeking complexity, as as you know a feature not a bug i think there are still a variety of ways in which the rules can be presented to appeal to different types of players and different types of audiences that in some cases are better written to learn versus better written to reference and and i think there are a variety of ways in which we could present the rules for not just for the players to be able to to learn and reference but but also for them to be fairly aesthetic rocky go ahead start yelling at me here no i wasn't going to I was going to say that there's there is a good example out there of, of exactly what you're talking about already, and that's Root. Root has two rule books. Yeah. The Learning to Play, which is written in a very conversationalist, no case notation, very friendly, um, very uh, first person. You do this, and then you do this, and it, it works hand in hand with the play aids which are an important part of the rules too. If you have the right player aids, uh, they can help along the way. But then Root also has the law of Root, which is done in a you know, limited uh, case notation uh, type approach. So to learn to play the game, you sit down with the conversation what's learning to play. And then later on, depending upon what type of rules lawyer you have, a good one or a bad one, you can go back and say, okay, which, uh, I, I'm not sure about that rule. Okay, let's, okay, that is actually 9.1. And here it is. Okay, now I'm, 
down clear, but you're using that as a reference back. And I think I think yeah. Gary was saying that first. You, you you learn you learn where do you learn to play? So in root you learn to play with the learning to play rules, and then you reference later in the law of root when you have your uh, disagreements. I think some of the coin games have done that also with the difference between the playbook versus the rule book. If you want to learn to play, you open the playbook and you push the pieces around as the playbook narrates to you. And if you need to reference the rules for a technical discussion later, you pull open the rule book. And that's something I think we've seen a little more of lately is mm-hmm. uh, designers or, you know, whoever's putting the game together at the at the end of the day saying, don't look at the rule book first, look at the playbook first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ideally, watch someone else play it first <laughs> or have them teach you first <laughs> and then, you know, go back and... and... I mean, I've always found that that helped. I mean, there's kind of two parallel questions happening here in the argument that Jim is 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 attacking. Um, one is the statement that uh, war games are in aggregate too complicated, and I am going to uh, align with Jim here and say I think that's nonsense. Um, there's never been a particular shortage of simple, easy to play war game. Um, the other point is that are war game rules structured in such a way as to facilitate ease of entry, and and in that case, I think there's you know. In general, wargame rules writing or rules writing of any kind is technical writing, and there's plenty of folks writing rule books that are not good technical writers. I think that's I think that's an <laughs> equally obvious statement to make. That's that, that, I would say that's almost optimistic, though, given some of the rule books we've seen. I <clears throat> I think ultimately one of the things that that can't be forgotten in all of this discussion of easy to learn, easy to reference, uh, you know, whatever it is with the ultimately they have to accomplish the goal of clearly and unambiguously laying out the process by which you play the game well they don't have to brand <laughs> well they're just supposed to fair point they that that should be the priority consideration um we've all played games for which that that seemed to be tertiary at best at but best. that that should be the ultimate goal for the rule book is that this explains how this toy works you know and 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 how you are supposed to make things happen with it such that you do what what it was intended to do um like, you know, virtually every other person on the planet, we've all picked up a game and just started doing stuff and then looked at the rule book. But um, and that's probably a lot more common in the digital gaming world than the, the tabletop one, because the, the computer will enforce a lot of the rules for you. But, uh, you know, ultimately, if you can't learn how to properly operate the game from the rule book, then it has failed as a rule book, regardless of whatever else it was supposed to do. So, yeah, but is that game going to be, is that a game with a poorly written rule book that's just inaccessible, even sometimes for seasoned players? (coughs) Is that really a game that's going to become popular and is going to be in the way of, of other people trying to access it? I'm going to guess and say generally that's almost never the case. Um, I mean, nobody, no sane novice wargamer is going to go grab themselves a copy of Vakdam Rhine and struggle through that absolute shit biscuit of a rule book that is (laughs) in the box. (laughs) Or... Or any of the, I mean, you know, we 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 like it. It's a favorite punching bag of this show, right? The Labatt rule books. So, well, uh, so that that very well, that's a bit of a different situation. I mean, there some of them are quite straightforward. There's right. twelve different rule sets. That's the problem there. But. Yeah, yeah, that's where I was going with that one. It's not like they're interchangeable rule sets. There's no, there's no series rule book for Labatt. You know? But okay, and, and so if we can leave briefly, then, or if, if we can leave to the side. The question of are war games too hard? Because I, I I think Gary's right. There's plenty of simple war games. Go go play Shores of Tripoli. 
Go play Undaunted. Go, go play Memoir. Go play Commands and Colors. These are fun games. All right, go play them. They are simple, accessible war games. What we then rise up to is the further question of are war gamers, is our cul-de-sac rising to the challenge that is being put to us by hobby war gamers? And here I will say the answer is far less clear or far less unambiguous. I Because I'll tell you this much, and just one last passing thought, I was I pulled up because of this topic. I did pull up Atlantic Chase. And if you want to talk about relativity, Atlantic Chase is held up legitimately among war gamers as an example of the way forward right? You put that in front of your average hobby wargamer and they're going to die of fright. <laughs> okay, they just are. It's just, it's it's a mess to them, but it's a really well done rule set. It's won freaking awards for being so good. So let's bear that gap in mind. But if, but if I could, I then want to say within the space of wargaming, are we doing what we should be doing to communicate our rule sets better? And what do I mean? I'll set two standards and I certainly would welcome others. Number one, simple proofreading. <laughs> Insanity. I'm sorry. I can prove. I I can prove that there are war game companies that don't do enough proofreading, and I know it's a dead horse, but I'm beating it again. You can't send me a map of the squadron defending the French coast and tell me that it's the B R E A S T squadron without me making fun of you forever. <laughs> I'm just gonna do that. That happened and shouldn't have. Yeah, there well, are. <laughs> but it's hilarious, at least. Oh, it's, it's darn funny. I mean, yeah, if you're going to make a typo, at least make one that, that will live in infamy and forever be mocked. If you're going to have typos, make sure they're as egregious as that one. Yes. <laughs> you know, and this wasn't in a rule book. This was on a map. Yeah. A printed four-color map. All right. So you know number one please type you know let's get some editing in here for form for content are you thinking about language i forget i think it was you brand who's who used the chimerical word unambiguous have you met war gamers they have never met an unambiguous word all words are ambiguous what does is mean in bakdam rhyme <laughs> that's a great question you know what what does is really mean you have to look in the 2020 version of the rules to find out. <laughs> I yeah. mean, we, I, we will discuss rules lawyers in a bit. I promise. We yeah. Will get to so, so, but, but, I'm, but even outside of rules lawyering, we, you know, the pernicious behavior that that is, are you, are you proofing your, are, are you making sure, look, as, as I've said many times, I'm a, I've, I have part of my life as a bill drafter. And on many, many occasions, I have said to those that I'm serving, what do you think this does? <laughs> and they tell me what they think the law does. And I walk them through and show them, no, it doesn't. It sometimes does the exact opposite or has a remarkably contrary, unexpected per uh, outcome. Yeah. Are you doing that? Are you checking that? Um, if if you've been on the Saturday Night Fights and the other broadcasts we've done, I think you all know we've been playtesting Valor and Fortitude, Jervis Johnson, the man who gave us Blood Bowl, the man who gave us uh, Epic 40K and Mordheim and any number of other games. Uh, we're playtesting his Napoleonic rules. And if you watch the episode where he actually appeared, we pointed out to him his rules didn't say what he thought they said. <laughs> Was and he, he changed... appreciative of that? No, and, and because he's a good designer, in fact, a great one, he went, oh, that's changing. And he changed it right there. You know, so well, are we proofreading? Good. And then related thereunto, suggested by my previous, are we playtesting our rules? No, just to determine that, and, and I've said this for a million years, if you are writing a set of rules for your buddies and your bet, and Gary's my best guy, and Gary and I, we play games 
every single day for the past 12 years. Is he the only guy checking your rules? Because you, you, Gary and I, we know each other. But Brant and I, we don't play together so much. Maybe we only see each other once every 10 years. I got to send it to Brant. I got to send it to Rocky so that they could look at it and go, this doesn't say that at all. Are you playtesting? Are you editing? And are you playtesting? And I don't think we can give a consistent answer. Yes, we are. Yeah, that 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 may be. Rocky, what do you think? So I'm wondering when we talk about revolutionary and such, uh, whatever happened to programmed learning? Uh, I have an old Starship Troopers game and it's programmed learning. You start with scenario one, you know, you, here's the rules, you do this, then you go on to the next one. Atlantic Chase, in a way, does that because you have the 10 tutorials. And you have to go through all 10 scenarios to get up and to learn the game. Um, whatever happened to that? And, and are we missing something? Are we should, we should we be going back to a program learning? Why did it fall out of disfavor? Artie, you've been around a while. I mean, where did you what did you come up on any program learning games and where did they where did they fall out? What did you do so, to program learning, Artie? Uh exactly. So offhand, uh, not just Atlantic Chase, but Jerry White's earlier games, the Enemy Coast Ahead game, very much use a programmed learning approach. Um I don't think that ever like went away completely. But as as I've talked about on a couple of recent shows, there's a downside. So I, I think the classic example that the you know stuffy old farts will think of when they think of program programmed instruction is going to be the original squad leader, right? So I'm going to use that as an example of the potential downside of, of programmed instruction, um, which is that once you're done, you get like, you know, these 10 scenarios or whatever it is that gradually build you up to the, to the point of playing the whole game. And then you're done. You've played the whole game. You've learned the whole game. And now you have no material to continue to play the game with. Uh, that was a big liability for that original squad leader box set, in my opinion. And that's what to some extent, drove the continued purchase and development of additional supplements that kind of crowded the game up. Um, so there is kind of a downside if, uh, if there's no like scenario basis, right? Um, in a game system like Squad Leader, which is scenario driven, and you can have a wide variety of different scenarios that you're actually going to play, you need those scenarios, right? If on the other hand, I'm going to play Vakdam Ryan, and Vakdam Ryan we've been talking about, of course, is the decision Vakdam Ryan from 2012. Um, you know, it's the Battle of the Bulge. You're going to play the battle of the bulge and yes there are scenarios in it but you know you're you're not going to leave the battle of the bulge um so while often we will see you know here's an introductory scenario or two um usually not anymore i mean sometimes you'll see you know nominally introductory scenarios quite often really nominally introductory scenarios that are just small scenarios right you gotta still learn the whole game uh it's just that maybe there's some things a couple things that are left out uh, in some of these small scenarios and and the goss games do that pretty badly actually the the starter scenarios in uh atlantic wall for example are the worst learning scenarios i have ever seen in <laughs> wargame um they are huge they take forever to set up they use special rules to replace the rules in the main game that aren't any simpler than the rules in the main game and then to move on to scenario number two you have to learn a second new different set of artillery rules that are also not the artillery rules in the main game and are also not especially less complicated than the artillery rules in a main game so it's easy to bungle too right but but we, it's never really gone away completely we've seen examples of it here and there but it has never really caught on as a as a really favored learning 
tool to include in the box. Um, examples that use programmed instruction um, have been since Squad Leader, which may have been the first game to use it. I'm not sure. Um, it's certainly the most the, the game that brought it to a lot of folks' attention that maybe didn't know about it previously. Um, but it, it's never really been widely adopted for some reason. And it seems on the surface to be, okay, this is a good way to teach people. But then where do you go? You've taught people, you've taken them through all the scenarios. But then is are you really asking about replay value of the game, right, rather than, than scenario selection? I think day of days, at least... Um, the SCS rules aren't super complicated anyway, but I know day of days you can play the big game that slaps all four maps together, but there are a couple of earlier scenarios that are much smaller, fit on one map, but also with the subset of units that are selected, like if you just do the airborne drops from the, the night before the actual land invasion, um, all you're dealing with are infantry units. Like you don't have any armor units on the map for a couple of those scenarios. So that's, that is one simplification just by what you chose to put in the scenario that can help with the limited scope you need to learn um it's not always the best way to do things but it is a way to possibly you know carve things back a little bit i'll tell you for programmed instruction uh it's you know look we're, we're gonna talk rpgs for a second again honestly the best programmed instruction box that i have ever seen was the 91 92 era oversized black box D&D basic game. I remember that. that. I heard it was very good for that. It had the dragon cards in it. And and when I tell people about this, they kind of look at me a little sideways. Dragon cards? What the fuck was that? It was was the little pull cards like you had for the the box of reading material in fifth grade when you did your self-paced reading and you walk over there and pull out the next color tab for whatever difficulty reading level you were on. And you'd take that back to your desk and read. It it was a series of color-coded tabbed pull out little mini folders and each one introduced another type of rule and you did it um, they, they did have, you know, the paper map and stand up markers as a part of doing this, but it introduced a new rule with each one of those cards as the sort of escape from this dungeon unfolded before you. By the time you were done playing through that little escape, you had learned about 80% of the rules that you needed to actually do stuff in the game. And, and look, unlike squad leader or whatever, you know, uh, D was always intended to be very open-ended. The, Squad leader, you can build your own scenarios just like you can build your own modules in D&D. But the, the, those dragon cards really worked incredibly well for programmed instruction that I could hand somebody the black box, come back in four hours, and they knew what they were doing. So so uh, a recent game, one that I picked up recently, is a Task Force by VUCA, VUCA Sims. And it's 12 scenarios. So the first three are solo tutorials, and you learn airstrikes you do the pearl harbor raid it's the whole thing's carrier battles of the pacific world war ii jim's gonna hang up now that you said solo well so but but you learn so it teaches you you walk it through you walk through the system the first one is um pearl harbor the second one is uh task force z the repulse so it's airstrikes against ships that are um finding the task force and and and, uh, then attacking it the third one is uh surface battles in a carrier game sometimes maybe and then then the fourth scenario is just a straight up duel two carriers versus two carriers and after you're done with that you've learned the game so to speak but it still has eight more scenarios and to get to Artie's point what's really nice about that is the 12th scenario is actually a toolbox toolkit for design your own uh, so you end up with that they're trying to get to that infinite replayability um, yeah. you have your you know the you know, 11 you know, eight or so scenarios that are that are already there in the box and then you know a couple of learning ones um, I was a little bit uh, 
hesitant at first going like really i mean to sit through but the, the tutorials went fast they were easy um i wish you know talk about rules complexity and rule books i wish maybe the rule book had been presented a little bit more in line with the tutorials or the tutorials were uh, maybe lined up a little bit better there's a little bit a lot of jumping around the rule books but maybe that's just game complexity or just a rule book maybe that is a case where a rule book needs to be written a little bit differently um if, if that's the approach you're going to take yeah yeah i i I think we've all got all kinds of examples of some bad rule books that we could talk about and it's it's very easy to sort of dog pile onto bad rule books um uh, everybody likes to hold up Atlantic Chase as, hey, here's a cool new way to do rules outside of Atlantic Chase. Atlantic Chase is not new. Tactics 2 used the same rules format <laughs> approach. I mean, I think I even read somewhere that Jerry talked about going back to some of the original ones. So, I mean, and, and it's not to say anything bad against him. I think he's done a great job of bringing it forward and, and doing it well. But I also say this. I dropped, before tonight, I went and I dropped a couple of uh, rules into some, just a, a, a readability. And Atlantic Chase comes out as a hard to read rule set. Mm -hmm. It's it, you need to have eighth or ninth grade um, squad leader ASL starter kit one actually scored a little bit easier to read in terms of just the way it was. This I think this gets to what Jim was talking about. A good proofreader, a good editor, the right language also goes a long way towards helping. Yeah, well, and the, the other thing is the squad leader rules have been around for so long that a lot of the, the weirdness in them has just been cleaned up over 40 years of, you know, revisions and edits and tweaks and, you know, fixing typos and whatever else. Uh, what I was going to throw out there is, you know, what are some examples of good rule books that we have seen that either make the game very easy to learn, very easy to reference, or just simply entertaining to read? What are some of the good rule books or, or look, if they're old enough, you know, Jim's a big fan of some of the old SPI quads, as am I. Um, the rules folder, if you will, instead of having to have a whole rule book. What are some examples of some good rule books out there that you have seen and, and ones that, that not necessarily that you enjoyed reading, but that were not necessarily a chore to read? Jim, is there something that springs to mind for you? I it's one of the reasons I was so interested in coming on this particular program. I wanted to shout out Dr. Sam Mustafa, the guy who wrote Blucher, the guy who wrote LaSalle, Might and Reason, Longstreet, and now Nimitz, which we're playing. I don't care whether you like his games or not. I disagree with some of the what he does in his, and these are miniatures games, I should say. These are rule books for miniatures games. There is no one writing in the miniatures game space that's better at it than he is. He clearly reads, or sorry, I say, I should say writes, reads, shares, play tests, and edits, and keeps doing it again and again and again and again until his stuff is polished and shines. I can't tell, I, I can count on one hand how many questions we have actually had to take to him on the boards, in emails about, hey, wait a minute, we were confused by this. It's, it, it's minuscule, which in a miniature space is quite rare. And often enough, when we were sending it to him, the answer came back, well, did you read what I wrote <laughs> and he showed it to us we went oh yeah that's what you said you know and so it's very special the other thing i would give him credit for because it does relate directly to your question his designer notes which i tweeted a number of them as i was reading the rules are some of the funniest you'll ever see because frankly he's been writing and playing rules for a very very long time and he's sick of your nonsense he's just he's just had it uh the one example i guess i could give out of nimitz is he he says 
there's a thing in Nimitz where if I'm shooting your ship, I get to choose which of your gun turrets I get to take out, port or starboard, no matter where my ship is. And and the question he puts in his frequently asked question designer note section is, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem fair. And it's like, oh, really? Well, what do you want me to do? Let you choose? How is that better? Let it be a die roll? Great. Let's build another system on top of an already complex process. Frankly, none of it is, and he explains how he worked through it, and you can see how he took it back to the table, iterated, iterated, iterated. And so that that was very exciting to me to be able to talk about that and say, again, whether you think his rules are good representations, good simulations, good games, whatever, I think most of them are quite good. Blucher is probably my favorite rule set. Whatever you think, you cannot deny that he, he puts them together at a very high level i'll take it all the way back to your other point and simply say if you want to see good rules written simply look at mark herman's rules for his blue and the gray quad for spi that's a mark herman original when he was in the in the golden days of spi yes it's a simple game it's intended to be a, a simple game don't tell me there aren't simple war games yes it is a uh you know yes it is a case numbered approach yes it is a lockstep approach, but it's clean, it's simple, and when we're, every time we've been done with any of those games, we haven't had a whole lot of questions. So I'd say if you want to see it on the simple side, do that. If you want to see it on the more complex side, Professor Mustafa. Well, Board Game Geek disagrees with you, Jim. About? About Mark Herman being responsible for the SPI Blue and the Gray Quad. Well, okay. None of which I have played, so I have no idea. Have they told Mark Herman this? I don't know. I have not. I have not talked to Mark literally since this morning, so (laughs) I haven't mentioned Mr. Herman, because I'm confident I have read this. Gary, you just really wanted to flex that, didn't you? No, not particularly. I think uh, that's a lie, but go on. (laughs) Well, okay, maybe a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I'm seeing, uh, you know, in, in some of the quads, they were all designed by different designers, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of what I'm... Now, I've never well, seriously looked at the blue and the gray quads, though, so I cannot say from personal experience what well, the hell's in Most of the quads, you'd have a, a, a primary designer for the series rules, and then each of the individual games had their own individual designers for them. Okay, and maybe so, Mark did the series rulebook, but if so, then somebody needs to inform the fine persons at bgg that is responsible for the strategy man the, the infallible data ma- monitors at bgg huh? yeah we I'm have not... we have crowdsourced falsehood <laughs> <laughs> or nonsense anyway yeah. yeah not for the first time <laughs> so so uh, gary what's a what's a good rule book out there that you like i can think of three recent examples off the top of my head relatively recent not necessarily this year in addition to atlantic chase that we we've already talked about um Actually, one of them is not that recent. Combat Commander is a very good rule book. This is a game I don't particularly like, uh, but it's got a very clear, very well written rule book, and and I think everybody acknowledges that it's a it's a pretty good rule. Book. Um, NATO: The Cold War Goes Hot from Compass Games. It's a huge, like eighty plus page rule book written by Bruce Maxwell, the designer. Uh, but every rule that we needed to look up was in there. Um, it is verbose, I suppose, but I don't mind verbose as long as I, I have all the information that I need in the book and can find it when I need it. And we were always able to. Um, and it's not an incredibly simple game, but neither is it necessarily justified to you know say it's an 84 page rule book so it's obviously a, a monolith of, of forbidding complexity um 
the war, Ernie Copley's rule books for the war, at least the war Europe. I haven't really dug into the war Pacific particularly. Um, we played that and, and, you know, Ernie's playing at the next table. And at no point did we need to bug Ernie for, uh, you know, Ernie, how does this work? Because I can't figure it out from the book. Um, there were there was like one ambiguous case that I felt was ambiguous in the rule book that came up over the course of the whole four or five days, whatever it was that we played. Um, and then I showed it to my uh, opponent and he said, yeah, I, I believe you're interpreting that correctly. It's so, oh, okay. I guess we don't need to ask Ernie about this. So I think that's a really well-written rule book as well. Rocky, what do you think? What are some good ones out there that you like? Um, geez. I, I, just in terms of what I'd like for the style, I, I go back to that route. The conversationalist, the law route. I know is it a war game or not we're not going to go down that whole road but uh, but i like it and, and it works well and i wish i wish some folks could figure out how to do that better um the vuca uh games right now uh actually it was it's case notation maybe it could use a little bit better organization but so far it's been it's a it's a fairly simple game and it's got a pretty good set of rules in it um I also like uh, pretty much most of the stuff that Brian Train does. I, I like just like the way he writes his rules um, and, and the way that they're put together. Um, and I think uh, Jim hits a good point on all this is many times it's not always just the way the rules themselves are written, but I find games that have a good designer's notes section that helps me understand and get into the headspace of where the designers were help a lot too. Because if they say, hey, I purposely made these decisions, then sometimes that stops me from questioning a rule yeah it's like okay i I see what you're doing you're you're in the design for effects school i I can go with that and and i go along with it and i don't try to get down to like okay well did you mean you know 0.3 or 0.4 i mean you just you just go with the flow if there's a good designer notes i can do that some games that don't ship with good designer notes i sort of sit there and i i I sometimes stumble because it's like what were you trying to do and 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 i I have no insight and no way of really figuring it out i'm sort of left to figure it out on my own and sometimes it's like yeah i'll just like pass on that it's like i do think that uh the question of whether rules are well-written rules or badly written rules is independent of whether we're talking about war games or not right Uh, whether root is a war game i think is immaterial to this discussion the um and i and i I suspect you agree um you know there are badly written war game rule books and well-written war game rule books and i mean there's probably a badly written a well-written rule book for backgammon out there somewhere that i've personally never read because i'll be damned if i can figure that out and it's (laughs) it's obviously not anywhere close to as complicated as Vakdam Rhine. So, you know, part of it is the the sort of rules writing culture that we're steeped in. The, uh, you know, we're used to the case format, especially those of us who've been doing this for a while, right? We find it comfortable. Um, and and we might find it awkward when a, a rules writer, I'll, I'll use the rules writer here because maybe that's the designer and maybe it's not. In the SPI days, it wasn't. It was usually the developer that did that. Um, you know, whether they have uh, made it easy to learn or not is is kind of an independent variable to the audience, right? Um, did you write to the audience that you are trying to speak to? And if that audience is people who've been in wargaming for a long time, then you may be better off using the case format because people are used to it. Um, we balked at Adam Starkweather's rulebook for D- uh, GTS. We said, you know, I'd really like to rewrite this whole thing is in the case system, and it would be much clearer even if we changed you know basically nothing else yeah i i uh just because i was curious i pulled up two versions of this rule book um it, rocky well let me take a half a step back here rocky you mentioned uh 
reading uh, rules for games designed by Brian Train, and Brian does most of his own rules writing, especially for the, the independently published stuff. Uh, a lot of times when you sit down and read one of his rule books, it's like having a conversation with Brian. Like if you've ever had a chat with Brian, it's it, that's just him explaining things in his voice. Gary, you mentioned the large Bruce Maxwell book. It's probably not unlike having a conversation with Bruce. It, there, there's very rarely been a short conversation with Bruce Maxwell about Oh, that's true. So, so why would you expect the rule books to, I mean, aside from the fact that it, it is in fact a complex game and needs that level of detail to explain, um, it's probably not unlike having a conversation with Bruce. And, yeah, but I would, I would gamble. You're totally right, of course. Uh, but I would, I would venture to say that if you had handed the task of writing that rule book to somebody and that wasn't Bruce, you might have gotten a 32 page rule book out of it. Yeah. Well, but that's the point, right? I mean, Bruce is a verbose dude. Why would we expect his rules to not be that way? Um, I uh, yeah, but 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 the, the I guess the point in this case is that the thirty-two page rule book might well have sucked. Um, it's you know, it, it ju- if you judge rules just by rules length alone, which obviously you shouldn't do, and I think we all understand that you shouldn't do that. Um, you know, it's about a thirty-two page rule book complexity right it's the it's of similar complexity to games that have 32 page rule books and those 32 page rule books are usually not as good yeah yeah i uh i always enjoyed the rule books that were written by pete bogdazarian because pete's a great dude anyway but (laughs) pete is a lawyer and so when he's writing things he he is writing them as as clearly and as as again unambiguously as possible and i i pulled out two versions of of this rule book i pulled out the original tank on tank rule book that pete wrote for the original lock and load publishing and i pulled out the redone one uh after david heath took over the company and they were republishing some different stuff one of my favorite lines when they're explaining the movement rules in tank on tank um, you know, when a unit is activated to move, blah, blah, blah. As with every other war game ever made, movement points may not be saved from one impulse to the next. <laughs> you know, back in the day of, of Avalon Hill, they had they felt they had to put that in the rules. Absolutely. I, I know. So so that is that is in the original tank on tank rule book from the small tuck box version of the game the new larger telescope box in the the movement section of the game manual, that line has been removed. And I I would have loved to have had a camera drone in the room when Charlie Roberts had to put up with that bullshit question from some (laughs) war gamer. Well, remember, it's an iron law of bureaucromancy, right? If there's a rule prohibiting something, some schmuck has done it. Yes. Yes. That that isn't a rule for war games. Also known as the rule book for a world at war. That's that's a that's a, that's what laws are. Oh yeah, I, no, can't, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've opened up a code of ordinances or a set of statutes and gone, okay, who did that? There was the, one of the places I worked. Uh, the, their big event every year was not the Christmas party; it was the Halloween party, and they'd do a big costume contest, and folks would dress up, and they'd they'd have some judge. There's always, I mean, basically, no work got done the whole day. There was, uh, you know, there, there was always a big banquet and everything, but Halloween was the big day. Of, of the work year at that place. And there were a handful of rules around the costumes and they were all named after the person who caused that rule to come into effect. So the rule was you couldn't have a live animal as a part of your costume because he brought his snake to work with him dressed as a snake when he was dressed as a snake charmer one year. There was one about, you know, sort of the, the limits of, of the, the 
how see-through the fabrics could be. And that was the Christine rule because her belly dancer costume was a little too risque one year. Um, the Brant rule was you couldn't bring weapons because I had a machete as a part of my safari guy costume one year. So they, uh, yeah, the, the rules were all named after the people who caused the rule to come into effect. So I think that's fantastic. Name and shame. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it was your fault, dude. Yes. I could completely understand the, the 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 mental process that might go on here. However, anybody listening right now may indeed have at some point flown through Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. And at I, Cleveland I, Hopkins International I can say Airport, I have done that. I have done that. There is a giant display right when you're about to go into go through go through the security checkpoint of all the insane stuff that has been confiscated by people who tried to carry on things like throwing stars and chainsaws and nunchucks and other katanas absolutely bananas stuff that people are dumb what can i say so so we are officially forgiving our 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 faithful worthy gamer friends for when they have attempted attempted mere idiocies like this is from an spi quad moving in your opponent's turn right or as you say saving as you say brent saving up your movement points from turn to turn yes and and yeah so and in fact vance and i have great fun whenever we go through and play one of those spi quads online we read the rules because it they're they're fascinating they're they're wonderfully clean but they do indeed put out things that make you go oh that was a problem wasn't it at the time so yeah i'm reminded of the tweet from the uh oklahoma state department of natural resources or whatever it was like you know we we can't believe we have to tell you people this but bear spray does not work the same way bug spray does you know yeah here comes the 10th season of the armchair dragoons podcast mentioned in dispatches Let's thank all of our Patreon supporters who pledged at the top level. A huge thank you to Staggerwing, Martok, Patrick Garrity, Fred and his dog, Mike Quigley, Joseph Knorr, Treb Corey, Robert, Patrick Mullen, Kevin Bertram, Chet Bell and Hellcat6 for their support of the Armchair Dragoons in helping us to bring you the best strategy gaming content on the web. You too can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchair dragoons. So that said, we, we acknowledge the need to do it, but a, a couple times Rocky has mentioned Root. Well, we interviewed Cole Worley. Yes. Right? And one of the things Cole said, Cole said a number of things that have had me thinking ever since, and just such an enjoyable guy and an enjoyable conversation. Uh, go listen to him. Don't listen to Brant and I. We're not worth the time, but Cole is. Um, listen to what he said. One of the amazing things he said was because of the advent of digital testing, because of the capacity to test in a virtual space, he has been able to expand the range of his play test geometrically. Yeah. And I can remember one of the former aldermen here in the city of Milwaukee who since passed away, his older brother was a play tester for SPI. And he would get the big manila envelope in the mail that he had to then cut the pieces apart, lay out the hand-drawn photocopied map, play test the game, write down his comments, mail them back. Well, that process now takes minutes. Mm -hmm. And I say that to say, what is the excuse of any war game? I'm not, now the hobby games, I this was said before, the hobby games are a different space. Let's face it, they're a bigger business. They sell at an order of magnitude utterly different from ours. 
etc. But there is simply no excuse in a rule book for a game company not to have played it iteratively again and again and again. I don't use Vassal, but I know a whole lot of people do. And, and, and the not best just again and again and again, but again and again and again with different audience members. Yes, you have got I to get how many times we've seen a particular company or two, and let's we're going to not name and shame, but it won't take long for people to figure out who we're talking about. You open any game from the last 10 years, and it's uh, of the eight playtesters listed, seven of them are the same on every single game for the last 10 years. Yep. It's all there's, the same. There's zero excuse, zero, for those folks not to be in a spot where they can invite new people to the table, show off their game, have the experience of their game, and get feedback from people who have fresh eyes, fresh, fresh attitudes, and a fresh approach that, that there's just no excuse for that anymore i of course agree completely with jim however uh, what if your game is decision games war in the pacific what do you do then you have set up not only a game that is among the biggest of the spi monsters and you're yep. you're working off that as your starting point but then you are providing uh breakdowns all the way from divisions to companies you are adding a separate map and land warfare system for every single island that could have been fought over in the pacific um all of which are at different scales because there are islands ranging from tiny rocks floating in the ocean to giant islands like okinawa um how do you play test that right so, so there's a question of scope creep too, right? That, that maybe if you've uh, chosen to design a game that is too big for you to reliably test, uh-huh. in which case maybe you have made a poor life decision as a <laughs> game designer. I, I, I think there are some ways to crack that nut. I'd be curious, Rocky. What do you think before I dive in on some of this? I, I think I think you already just said it. You got to you got to scope it, and yeah. and I think actually in some ways the digital space will help you scope it because mm-hmm. you can break it down into little smaller digital modules. You don't have to have one box. You can have a file structure that can that can help you. But but then you know it gets into the rules and rules of exceptions and everything and, I, and that gets into then rules complexity and uh and, and just where how complex of a game are you going to have because if you have to more complex you need more complex rules um and maybe that makes it uh yeah at that point maybe you are doing campaign for north africa all again you know a thousand hours and nobody ever play tested. it's a perfectly balanced game and you can't prove otherwise right, yeah, nobody <laughs> yeah. Can't. i defy you to play it for two thousand hours and tell me i was wrong but you have to do it twice <laughs> my, because my, you may have gotten some rules wrong the first time yeah. Yeah, may huh yeah okay <laughs> the the answer with cna is i don't care if it's balanced or not i'm not gonna find out <laughs> the, i will buy your copy for the low low price of 25 dollars yeah um <laughs> i've already sold it sorry um the i think you know rocky hit on it and, and that is for something like that giant war in the pacific I think you you can do a lot of digital testing of the subsystems. I think you're still going to need some sort of group testing of the overall monster campaign where you throw the thing out on the pool table in the garage for six months or a year or whatever. Um, leave it set up, work your way through the whole thing. But I think a lot of those smaller things, again, you know, the company-sized engagements, fighting over rocks floating in the North Pacific, those you can probably do digitally. Those those are probably doable um, in, in those varying sections. And then, so it's, look, it's unit testing versus integration testing in the software world. You know, does does my piece of code work? Yes. Does my piece of code work when it's integrated with everything else? Well, maybe let's find out. And that everything where... tested perfectly until it hit the public and then it imploded. Yes. Yes. Like every other piece of software. Um, or a war game. Yeah. 
But I, I think that a lot of those subsystems can be done digitally. The other thing that I would say is that production, like digital component production, um, can be very easy in some cases because copy and paste is a whole lot easier than literally copying and pasting out of a photocopier with some chipboard. Remember when Kevin Sembiata would literally copy and paste? Yes. With literal yes. paste from <laughs> rulebook to rulebook? Yeah. And and you could tell because you could see a couple of the seams here and there where the mm. where, where the copies were made. Um, that you know, look that that was the technology available at the time. I you know I, I was doing newspaper paste up back then. There's there's a reason the word paste is in paste up. Um, it, it, the you know look Jim will tell you that digitally it's very easy to create mass quantities of stuff because how many of those little voxel minis have you got running around the battlefield, Jim? Our biggest one presently is the Battle of uh, yeah I would I would say it's probably. Talavera, fifteen thousand. Yeah, and and you is didn't it one have... to one? No, uh, no, no. You know, Eggmul is bigger. Eggmul is eighteen thousand, and it is approximately six to one. Yeah, and and you didn't hand assemble sixteen thousand digital minis. I wish you, to be uh... clear, I didn't assemble one digital mini. No, you copied and pasted from somebody I else's assembly. I didn't assemble jack shit. That's right. I did at none of that. That's the mechanical Turk. Woot woot. Jim, Jim committed every miniatures wargamer's mortal sin. He bought a pre-assembled, pre-painted army. I <laughs> as and I have I in in responding. What heathenry to, is this? In, in responding to them, I have stolen a line that Brandt gave me, and I and I love it, and I will use it ever. You are into the arts and crafts. I am not. I wish to play a game. Let's continue. Yeah. So it's the the digital side of things can make, you know, as as Cole pointed out, he's got guys that have several hundred hours into a game before it ever gets published because he's got the ability to reach out to, to a much wider audience and provide them with very easily changed components rather quickly. You you know, we can always throw a Sharpie on a counter to change a, a two to a three for a combat factor if we need to. It's not that hard to make a lot of those digital changes and send the digital version of that back out in Tabletop Simulator for people to work on. So I, I think Jim's original point was, look, there's no excuse to not have a broader audience testing these things. There's, I, I would caveat it with, there's no good excuse. There's plenty of people that are going to make excuses. They're not generally good ones. Uh, right. And for clarity, good play testing and bad play testing can have an impact on the shape of the rules. If there's an easy exploit that you just did happen not to see in your 100% internal playtesting of you noodling around by yourself on your game table, then, um, you know... Because <laughs> yeah. that is, you know, Frank, to be honest, some game games don't get more playtesting than that, right? Right. So, oh, it's uh, clear. It's absolutely I, I clear. I wasn't 100% guilty of that, but I was probably close. John's, I had a conversation one time with John Zinsner of uh, AEG, and this is in the context of RPGs, but I think the same, I think the same line of thinking, and I'm not vouching that he's right necessarily, but it's definitely food for thought, uh, applies to war games or any rule book, right? He said, you know, I'm happy to design games. I want somebody else to write the rule. I don't want to write the rules because I know the rules. I am, I have internalized the rules. I designed the game. I want somebody to come in, take, take my rules and then write a rule book based on those rules. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought that was a very interesting point. No. And, and you know what? 
I I don't know this gentleman, but I give him a lot of credit. Clint Eastwood in The Enforcer taught us, no, it's uh, Magnum Force. A man's got to know his limitations. And and I, I believe that, by the way, to be uh, at least, you know, since the, the end of SPI, I believe that scenario to be relatively rare in wargaming. I it's terrible. Well, it's rare because of a lack of resources. Sure. It's it, in wargaming. It's rare because, you know, our, our, but I also wonder, and this is, this actually is a debate that takes place in hobby gaming. I hear it all the time on the podcast I listen to. It's on the Dice Tower. The Dice Tower does a very good job. I, for the times I will criticize them, I think they're myopic and a little blind to a broader field of gaming in a way, by the way, that war gamers aren't. Thank you very much. I, I think they're far more bigoted against war games than we are against hobby games. But that having I'm been not said, bigoted against hobby games at all. I'm only bigoted against the Dice Tower. Oh, there you go. And and I and and so him that that having been said they do a wonderful job of calling out people who write in their space bad rule sets and one of the things that they point out is at this stage of their hobby of what they're doing you can't you know type on your eight and a half eleven sheet have your mom mimeograph it and you staple your rule set together and go here you go something more is expected you can still and- get away with that at historicon just not yes. <laughs> Ah <laughs> oh, man, why am I oh, wrong? Oh zing! I am you know I what? wrong? I I turned around and Clubber Lang was standing right there. <laughs> I pity the fool. I pop You ain't no man. Um, that was that was cruel, but true, but true. Yeah, and and I will say, look, look, hobby games. Obviously, much the the stakes are higher, the money is higher, the investment is higher, the quality is higher. War games because the level of entry is so low. You know, look, what's what's the difference between? Oh, look, I've got my entire Napoleonic army in a box, and it's labeled Le Bataille. You know, even if it's a little expensive, it ain't nothing compared to painting those guys. Oh hell no! You know, it's a teeny 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 fraction. I sometimes so, threaten my wife with. To take my, I'm gonna take up miniatures, honey. Is that no? Yes. All right, fine. Go and play your darn Labat. <laughs> if you don't let me play Labat, I'm gonna play minis with those other people. Um, but but so because that level is so high, the niche is so small, it it, it is still teeny teeny teeny. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those games just don't get the love, and you're right, they and part of that too is that hobby is so my hobby, it's my hobby, it's what I play, is so splintered. That was my rant, right? I, I actually went on a rant about okay, you've put out a Napoleonic battalion level set of rules, why? What <laughs> makes you think we need you? What are you bringing that's different than every other rule set that's come out for the past 40 years? 40, what am I saying? 60 years since Jack Scrooby wrote. Why are you different? Why are you better? And the answer is usually crappy. So yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm just, I'm reveling in the correctness of your statement. Well, I, I think sometimes for the designers, it goes back to, well, I wanted to design the game I wanted to play because I couldn't find one that I liked. <laughs> I think such BS. I, I shall channel my BS. inner Cerno with a, uh, a frequent response to to queries mentioned at, at game conventions have you tried them all <laughs> you know right right yeah it's it, that that line is such utter bs that is that, that i that just did, oh. but yeah and 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 certainly and i want to be clear i hobby gamers war board war gamers i absolutely hold minis war gamers to the same standard i'm done i'm done with your unedited unplay tested stuff and i i will name names because i like the guy i like you know i i, I like the guy who wrote absolute emperor 
He's a great guy. And and he came up with a great guy. Osprey Games crapped on him. They released a horrible version of his game into the blue book. It's unacceptably bad. They owed people, and I'm sorry. There were, the maps were screwed up. The scenarios were screwed up. The rules were disorganized. There were key pieces of information that were off to heck and gone. And by the time you got him to the table to explain how the rules worked, you're like, oh, that's a fun little game. That's a neat idea. But it certainly wasn't that way in the rule book. It just shouldn't, you shouldn't have to have the designer explain it to you to learn how to play. Right. That's it. There's no, I can't put the designer of the game in a box and bring him along with me everywhere I go. So yeah, I mean, all three of these phases need to be held. It's past time. Our technology is such, our uh, availability of playtesters is such, do better. You said we were going to come back around to rules lawyers. Rocky, talk to us about rules lawyers. Um, well, <laughs> there's two types. There's <laughs> the bad ones. <laughs> yeah, the ones that the ones that you hate, the ones that are super competitive. Then there's also, I mean, there are good rules lawyers. Sometimes you do need somebody who has who knows the rules down cold and who's like, wait a minute, you can't do that. And they 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 can sometimes help the game move along. But I think what everybody hates is the, is the bad rules lawyers, the ones that. It just it gets back into maybe just why are you playing the game? I mean, are you playing it for fun? If you're playing for fun, then you, okay, maybe you, some of the rules are going to bend because you're having fun. Or are you playing it because you know you got money? Yeah, <laughs> I, I played. I had X Wing was around here when it, the first edition X Wing, and I went down to some of the you know friendly local game shops to oh let's you know just come and drop in and play. And I, I gave up after one night because I was down there to play for fun, and they were out for you know I'm going to min max and then do everything out he was like okay fine you go play your game because that i'm not going to play that one with you and and they were rules lawyers or were they rules lawyers like oh you can't do that i mean no 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 can we just play fun but so so rules lawyers good and bad i tend to like the good ones better uh they help the games go along but and if you're a bad rules lawyer and the bad trope you know um move along one of my all-time favorite bgg arguments were two guys arguing over the definition of a rules lawyer yeah this this was a thing that actually happened and multiple people tried to point out to them the irony of what was going on and they were just completely oblivious to it i, I went looking for a good definition of a rules lawyer and actually the ones that best the best one i found that i liked the best was on tv tropes so yeah. just uh, that, that was the best one out there for me i thought you were going to say you told chat gpt to give you the definition of a rules lawyer nah nah no nah. It's not going to give you back anything worth. It. It's going to be like I'm waiting. I'm waiting for somebody to write a rule book <laughs> using chat. Yeah, yeah. And then we're all just going to crap on it because it's not going to have any of the things that Jim wants. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, look, we have we 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 joke on our broadcasts. We joke about has hasdrable one of our the regular viewers it all went back to he's a living expert on the blue her rules and so whenever somebody else becomes really really good at a set of rules he becomes known as that rule has you know so it's uh it he's chain of command has he's um uh fire and fury has you know he's he's that expert i cherish having somebody who's got the rules to call them to mind and help everybody like you said help everybody play the game yeah. you know if you're a facilitator if you're a helper if you're a, a resource that's great you know that's a beautiful thing if you're someone who is digging through the rules to seek a craven advantage do me a favor and become a solo gamer that's where you belong that yeah. way you could cheat yeah. all you want yeah go ahead and beat your i was about to say uh, 
Go ahead and uh, uh, I want to put this in a way that doesn't sound indecent. Triumph over yourself to your heart's content. We all know what you're trying to say, Jim. Yeah, that's right. Don't beat around the bush. <laughs> Tonight yeah. on Double Entendre TV. Tonight on Double Entendre TV. Yeah, yeah no, I, uh, I that that's there is nothing more depressing in the world to me. I actually got a really nice comment once from Richard Clark from the Two Fat Lardies who watched one of our episodes and said, "I never thought you Americans played that way." And I said, "What way? Like gentlemen, you know, <laughs> in a way that it's like, yeah, we want to win, but it's not that big a deal, you know. And it's it's far more important that we all have fun. And and if someone's not if someone's in the way of that, as, as I say, the uh, typhoon leader is calling you. I mean, I try to be, I, I kind of try uh, for games that I'm playing regularly. I try to like internalize, right? Um, so, so I can get to the point where I can guide where necessary. Um, there's very few games that I am that into that I am willing to do that. Um, otherwise, I'm happy to let somebody else be the resident rules expert. Uh, but if we're talking about OCS or BCS, then I then I'm happy to at least try to be that guy, even if I'm wrong some of the time. Yeah. Um, Gary, what was the percentage of rules lawyers at Winterfest? Oh, uh, I would think it was it was real. Really it was real low. Real really? low. Yeah, real low. Well, there was no Labatai game there. Okay, well, okay. So I, I was, uh, I was. But there's, you know, be... it's it's refreshing to play a game with one rule book, right? <laughs> just just based on the uh, demographics of Winterfest, I was expecting it to be. Oh, high. you know what? I'm wrong. It's not zero. It's not zero. Um, there was a uh, an individual who is known for his, uh, let's say, emotional instability, who flew into a rage. Um, at some nonsense that uh i don't know that it was rules related more than personality related uh but uh but i mean i am not going to say that everybody present in that room the entire week was was a perfect gentleman the entire time however the dude whose tweezers the, who had the tweezers fly through the east front the, that guy was a was a perfect gentleman about it i mean he was disappointed but <laughs> um you know uh, we, we don't really have to deal with that uh in the, the circle of folks who who i was paying attention to during that event let me put it that way um we had some people who were you know more knowledgeable on the rules and we're playing goss right not everybody is equally knowledgeable about the rules to this game i am not sure that there is a a, like a legitimate rules expert for this friggin game okay um i'm not sure joe Yaust, the designer is the rules expert in this friggin game so um you know we, we helped each other as we went and sometimes that meant pointing out stupid stuff based on the rules that people were about to do. So, so I won't say there was no rules lawyering, but if if you are asking the question, was there an obnoxious rules lawyer there? Um, no, I don't think so. The one obnoxious individual was obnoxious because he's obnoxious and not because he's a rules lawyer. That's good. I look to to the credit of the folks who have gamed with us at Origins over these last eight and a half, nine years, whatever you know, however many Origins we've. Been That's actually a much years. better sample than than Winterfest because yeah. there's like no you know yeah like one or two new people show up every year and otherwise the other 35 people all know each other and have been gaming together for years where at Origins you have a much higher percentage of randos coming through to sit down and play games even if you do you know we do know a decent number of those folks yeah we, we and, and for some reason most of our repeat offenders seem to all be named Scott I'm not really sure how that worked out we've got like four dudes all named Scott that all show up every year to, to game with us the we've had a remarkably low headcount of rules lawyers over the years at origins, even with all of the, uh, all the variety of games 
and and all the variety of people that we've had come through there. Uh, part of it is many people are coming to us to learn to play the games that we have on offer. So so they are. It's not like they already know the rules. They want us to teach them to them. So so that does help in in some sense uh, with the rules lawyering. Uh, I think part of it is a lot of folks, you know, why would you spend all that money to go to a place just to get in a pissing contest with somebody? So as TV Troops has pointed out, there are basically three kinds of rules lawyers. And I'm going to use my own terminology for these these individual <laughs> characters. On the one hand, there is the helpful rules lawyer that I strive to be, where, where I can be the rules. On the other hand, there's the knucklehead rules lawyer who sounds like they know what they're talking about, but in fact, they are a knucklehead and have no idea. Um, and we know a couple of those, you know, you and I both know a couple of those people people and some of them might even be the same people and then there's the douchebag rules lawyer and that person <laughs> is is a rules lawyer for the sake of giving themselves an advantage right and and you know it's it's fair to say we've seen examples of all three of those individual characters um over the years but uh you know at, at winterfest i don't think there was a douchebag rules lawyer and I'm not sure there was a knucklehead rules lawyer either. There were a number of helpful rules lawyers and un un one unstable crackpot. <laughs> yeah, and, and look, all of us have done any number, you know, any amount of RPG gaming over the years also. I think I've run into more douchebag rules lawyers in the RPG world than I ever did in the war game world. Yeah, oh. I think I think there's something to that, actually. because oh, I think our, I, I, that's just true. Because yeah, so an RPG's rules are fundamentally flexible, right? Most RPGs will tell you, hey, these are the rules, but do what you need to do, right? Uh, no war game starts out that way, uh, except the Kriegspiel, which is really kind of an RPG for war gamers, right? Yes. That, that's not called D&D. &D. Um, the, <laughs> a, a war game, the rules are the rules, right? We're supposed to all be playing by the rules, and maybe the rules are ambiguous, and maybe the rules are clear, but we're all supposed to be playing by the rules. So so, uh, yeah, I think the an RPG's rules are by the definition of what an RPG is versus a war game or any other kind of tabletop game, um, more susceptible to rules lawyering. Does the yeah. term arise in RPGs uh, instead of war games? I suspect that it does. Oh, rules yes, lawyering? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's I, a guy called the rules lawyer who was a D&D &D player who is an actual lawyer um, on YouTube, yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. and he plays D&D. &D. He doesn't play war games. We have never seen him playing Panzer Group of Guderian. Jim, Jim will tell you that if he is playing D and D, he is playing a war game. Uh, I am. I don't agree with Jim's position on this, but I am sympathetic to it. I, I, I apparently, I so your sudden disregards for what words mean puzzles me, but I'll allow you to go on. <laughs> oh boy, Rocky, yeah. say something. <laughs> I was going to say, I think uh, Peterson in his books on uh, D and D actually has like where the origin of rules lawyering came from. I think. Oh yeah, that's where I would look if that. That's, if that's the yeah, case. Yeah, I, I think it's actually in there. You know, Look, I, no, no. I, ship, I, I, at that point, though, if 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 we're talking about playing at the world, which ends in like 1975 or six or something like that, um, if we're talking that early, then there is no ma ma material difference between their D and D and a war game. Yes, and that's and it's it's the early days, the early days, mm -hmm. right from the beginning. There were rules lawyers. Sure. Yeah, I I I've played. I won't say I've played as much RPG stuff as I have, but play groups with people sometime at a con. And watch what happens. Just saying. You know, it's, I it's mean, it was it, the original the publication was a literal war game called Man to Man. Yes, yes. 
And the, no, I, the, the predecessor game was the Fantasy Trip, which was literally a man-to-man combat game mm-hmm. on a hex grid. Yep. And then they added a supplement to put wizards in the game. I mean, it, <laughs> which, it was where, a literal where, war game. Where magic functioned as a ranged weapon. Right. I, I mean, obviously. Come on. Hello. What do you think it was? <laughs> so you uh, had a counter on a hex casting a hex on right. another counter. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, All right. makes perfect sense. Clearly, nobody's read the bottom of any article lately at the Armchair Dragoons. <laughs> Again, Jim will tell you that, uh, you know, uh, D&D is a war game. He he likes to to pull that one out on a regular basis. So it's, uh, no, but, you know, look, uh, rules lawyers, don't be one. If you're going to help, help. Yes. But just don't, don't, don't be one. Use, you know. And I would also challenge my fellow gamers, be a play tester. I know not everybody wants to, and not everybody has the time that everybody's got the inclination, but, you know, give back to the hobby because it's not like there's that many of us, you know, whether it be board and certainly God almighty minis, you know, it is an incredible joy to play test. And if you find a, you know, our guy, Robert, Jim, you've never been on a decision games play test. Oh God. Yeah. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be. I, I'm just saying. We've got six people that fit that description in the last 20 years. That's true, and they're all in my gaming group. I have lines. <laughs> I have lines and standards. Um, <laughs> you know, the the people for whom I have play tested have been nothing, and that goes all the way back to Steve Jackson Games. I was a play tester on GURPS vehicles once upon a time. Um, that that disaster. I play tested hot lead. Um, wow. Yeah, I still have my I still have my bound print copy that probably between long distance download costs and copying costs cost me 60 bucks oh i bet you could sell that for more than 60 bucks though you think i i don't know so yeah it's it's still in decent shape i know so i have my hot lead and um you know so i i've always enjoyed it i've always enjoyed be part of that process because it's the only way it's going to get better but also as consumers stop taking less just don't accept it this is a hard lesson for consumers to learn it is stop putting stop putting up with bullshit (laughs) that's 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 straight up straight up well relevant to tonight i have been more than more than once i have worked um you know helped uh not necessarily play test but just simply send me a copy of your rule book your draft let me read it and see if it makes sense and and you know it, 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 is there enough in there that, that it flows right uh and again you know jim to your point you know proofread editing a little bit of the language i mean play testing playing the game and, and helping them play and test the mechanics is great but sometimes it's just as simple as i give a pass to your rule book and i can't make yeah, head or tails out of what you're saying in section three. It yep. just makes no sense. Yep. I uh I've made the offer multiple times over the years that I am happy to review rule books for folks. This is the part where I mentioned I have an undergrad degree in editing and a master's degree in journalism. Mm. I am willing to ha- do so for the low, low price of copies of Campaign for North Africa. <laughs> <laughs> And, and people say, you know, hey, they should be paying for this and all this other stuff. They have paid staff. I get that. But they're going to need other people to do it. And if you want the hobby to thrive, if you want games, if you want games, you've got to give to the hobby. 
This isn't, they're not publishing Gloomhaven, people. Well, but how many of the staff that they have are actual editors? And how well, many that's of the staff it. that they have are like shipping and receiving and, you know, payroll folks and, and, and you know, whatever for, for the, over in the finance world. Uh, you know, uh, you know the number of, of war game publishers with actual staff that aren't family members of the owner is uh, uh, probably I can count on. You can count on two hands and have fingers left over. Exactly. Yeah. That, that, that number is very, very small. Well, but that that goes back to the point that you made earlier about since the you know si- since SPI died, it may have carried on briefly with Victory Games because it was a lot of the same people. Mm-hmm. But since that ended, the the folks designing the games were writing their own rule books, largely because they're freelancers. They're not mm-hmm. staff designers. Mm-hmm. You don't have five folks down the hall and somebody comes in and goes, "Hey, your assignment for the next three weeks is work on designing this game." And after you figured it out, we're gonna hand the rules over to the rules writing office with these other three dudes down the hall guys gals whoever and and let them write them sometimes it was guys sometimes it was gals at yes. SBI. yeah exactly and and that's how, how many of the the big games that we're seeing these days the the bigger hits or or the series or anything else like that that you know that that was designed by an in-house design team at a company somewhere that that actually runs you know that, that whose primary purpose at that company is to design games that is a literally fictional scenario unless yeah. the designer <laughs> is also the owner of the company yeah that, and, that and, simply in the war game happened. world that is in yes. in the hobby world that's not yes, that could be different yeah absolutely we're talking about war games but even look scott blanton right i i know scott because he owns gamers army down the street here scott's the i i don't know the official title that he's got up there at mmp but he sort of runs the day-to-day operations at the office up there in baltimore are they p- actually paying him yeah well as far as i know <laughs> oh, I think so you're they, assuming that they're paying him here's here's the evidence i use to support the assumption that he is being paid his wife is still married to him okay <laughs> i imagine if he was doing all this as a volunteer here, you know, Crystal would have kicked him out a long time ago. Well, that's um, possible. <laughs> so I, I I know them both. So that's why I'm making that assumption that, that Crystal would have had had much more to say were he not being paid. Scott designed the Storm Over Jerusalem game that MMP has on pre-order right now. But that's not because Scott's role at MMP is to be an in-house game designer. That's something Scott's been working on. Yeah, for he's years. supposed to be the business manager. I'm not sure what the actual title is. Yes. But that's that's how he has been described by a, a number of insiders. Yeah, but Bruce's day job is not game designer at Compass, right? That's not Bruce Maxwell's day job. Oh shit, no. Yeah, he that's... Bruce has money to make, man. He can't can't be doing that. <laughs> but but that's that's my point, right? I mean, how many of these folks? Uh, again, you know, the the exception there, Amabel is the lead designer at Hollenspiel. Yes, but she Amabel. owns Hollenspiel. Amabel is also the co-owner of Hollenspiel, so you know she's paying herself to design her own games. Everybody right? else, and they publish. A substantial number of games by other designers uh, not but one of whom is on staff at hollandspiel co- correct i mean i you know i, I don't want to use hollandspiel as the example because they yeah. are by design literally a two-person operation 
right? Yes. Uh, but, yes. you know, a lot of these companies that we think of as big companies, right, are absolutely peanuts, yeah. right? With Local Where they have literally, yeah. you know, they're paying the family members and sucking, the, you know, at the company teat. But uh, otherwise, they literally have zero paid staff or yeah. or, or a very small number of people or, or temps that they bring in to when they have to ship a major release or something like that. Yeah, but so that's the, the, like, Volco is not on staff at GMT. No. Right? So, so it's not like they're giving him an assignment, hey, go design X game because this is what's in our pipeline next. And when you're done designing it, we're going to hand it over to the rules writing department. And let I don't think they tell Volvo that. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, but that, that exists in no companies these days anymore. Exactly. So that's the the, the well, closest thing to an exception you might have are the guys out in Bakersfield, right? Because so many of those designs are by a couple of their in-house folks. And and it's... Yes, uh, I mean, that's true. But those folks are, you know, uh, like helping run the company uh, that yes. also happen to design games, your Mark Simonich's and, and, and so forth. Yeah. So, and it's, it's Simonich that I'm specifically thinking of over there. Yeah. Rocky, what well, were you companies are, companies are starting to change though. I think, uh, even even the Bakerfield boys, um, are, are bringing on, was it Kai, Kai Jens just come on. She's mostly to do rule books. That's not the Bakersfield guys. Oh, Hart- Hanford, sorry. That's the Hanford guys. Yeah, Hanford. Yeah, sorry, Hanford. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what what is it with in- what is it with war game companies being in the middle of nowhere, California? I got this mixed Christian. up too, to be fair. Huh? So yeah, I mean, I I I uh, does does Doug it's Johnson gets uh, is like the only other employee besides Doc and Kelly that I could think of at Decision Games, uh, and I'm I'm not at all sure Doug's drawn a paycheck. <laughs> yeah. So so that look, we all agree that. There is room to improve the quality of tabletop war game rule books. Vacuously true, as we used to call it in discrete math. There are a variety of means that people could undertake to do so. That said, there's there's the comfort food, right? There's the familiar comfort blanket that we like to wrap ourselves in of something like the case system that is easy to index and reference during gameplay, but not necessarily always the best way to learn rules. There are better ways to learn rules. There there's all manner of, of editing and clarity that could come through, not just in the rules writing. The play testing obviously has has a, a you know has a role to play in that, but as in, in identifying that the rules say what you mean for them to say. And and in all of that, ultimately what helps is putting more eyeballs on. Them. And it, it seems like more folks would want to take advantage of that if it is at all practical. And then, you know, after that, we'll still there's still gonna be some douchebag rules lawyer that wants to be a jerk about what's what what came out, right? That's an easy problem to fix. You just don't play with that person. Yeah. <laughs> Let's uh let's go once more around the table here and kind of wrap all this up. Jim, closing thoughts. What do you got? Do better, people. The market is changing. The market is evolving. Uh, well, actually, let me say just two things. Number one, the rules aren't the reason people aren't getting into war games. Some games are complex and people don't want to play them. That's okay. I love them. I hope they love us. But number two, do better. Calling on the companies, edit, edit proofread proofread test test and all y'all that want our little ecosystem to thrive get on the bus jump in the pool the water's fine yeah I think the the issue of why people aren't playing war games is a whole separate series of podcasts in and of itself that that we didn't ever really intentionally go to this time around. But that but that is I I don't think it can be denied that that's one of the things that you'll hear. 
Yeah. Um, Rocky, what do you think? Find a game that you like, read the rules, accept that, you know, they may, might not be written the same way you write them. But if you enjoy the game, enjoy the game. And and if you got a bad rules lawyer around, you know, they, they, there's it's, it's proper to throw them out. <laughs> Which uh, I, I think Gary will have no problem disagreeing with at all. I disagree, obviously. <laughs> Actually, no, I don't. Um, I, I think the important takeaway here is to is to we need we need to do better. But I think one of the things we need to do better at is framing the questions in such a way as to allow us to illuminate the answers that we are actually looking for. Um, as Jim has pointed out, the problem is not that there there aren't enough simple war games. The problem is not that there are complicated war games. There are complicated war games for people who like complicated war games and simple war games that people like simple war games. Um, what is the question we're actually asking. If we are saying that the standard of rules writing in war game rule books is lower than it ought to be, then I think that's a conversation that we can have. But that's not the conversation of all these comp that we have historically had. That is all of these complicated games are keeping people out of war gaming. Uh, because I think that's obviously not true. I think there's plenty of actual statistical metrics that show that that's not true. The comp what's the most complicated hexagon of war game you can think of or most popular ASL. It ain't simple, um, but uh, and somehow it manages to keep accreting more players. I they were not all ancient geezers at uh, uh, ASL Oktoberfest when I when I stopped in this past October. So uh, if we're gonna if we're going to you know make these criticisms, then and maybe they're legitimate criticisms, but let's let's be better about framing the questions that we're actually trying to get to the bottom of. Yeah. I- Again, I think the idea of, you know, a- appeal to non-war gamers is a whole separate discussion. I think it within is. the context of, of the rule books themselves, aiming for the existing war game audience, you have an enthusiastic audience who is already predisposed to understand many of the concepts, ideas, and terms that underpin wargaming as a whole. And if on top of all of that, your rule book still gets in the way of them being able to learn and play the game if it's not going straight to ebay it's going on a shelf and staying there now to one extent some of the companies aren't going to care because they already got your money but if you want the you know the designers are going to care they want the games to be played and to be enjoyed and so lower the barriers to that as much as you can by making the rules accessible however that might might need to be done for your particular set of rules. Maybe the layout needs to improve so it's easier to read. Maybe the the verbiage needs to be cleaned up so it's more consistent. Let's get rid of the typos. Let's whatever it might be. Every rule book's going to have its own ways in which it can be approved. Don't be afraid of finding those improvements. I think is is really my my point in all of this. There's there's always room to improve. Don't be afraid of going to find it. So, um, audience, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this this has been one of our longer episodes, but as we you get with with this crew on here we we like to ramble and uh and ramble we have so uh jim thank you for coming back two weeks in a row even thank you for coming back appreciate it happy Uh, to be here gary thank you for being here uh delighted as always Going to see you in a couple of weeks at Buckeye Game Fest. So, folks, if you haven't made your travel plans to be in Columbus the last week of April, you're wrong. You uh, you should come join us at, uh, at Buckeye Game Fest and then come back again uh, in the summer for Origins. Literally all the finest Labatai players will be there. So, four of them? Looks like it might be 12. <laughs> you said the finest. The finest. I mean, I mean the, finest, the finest. The very, and all the extras. finest. <laughs> right. Well, that's true, too. I didn't, I didn't say there wouldn't be some Cretans there, too. <laughs> if, you're, if you're up to 12, 
there's going to have to be some filler somewhere. <laughs> all right. Uh, Rocky, are you going to join us at one of these conventions one day? One of these days. All right. All right. We're going to, we're going to hold you to that at some point. Big happening so. at Origins this year. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And, uh, and audience, uh, thanks again for joining us on another episode of, uh, of Mentioning Dispatches. Thank you.